You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Holly Peterson. I'm an educator, and I'm um, blessed by being with these two wonderful leaders today. So um, on my right, we'll start Go ahead with um, introducing Archbishop Katja, who many of you know. He is the representative to, of the Holy See, the Holy See um, Permanent Observator to the United Nations. He's a native of Milan. Uh, he's been was appointed bishop in 2009 by Pope Benedict. And before his current position as the UN observer, he worked in the offices in Tanzania. He was a secretary of state and served in, as the apostolic nuncio in Lebanon and in the Philippines. So we welcome you, Archbishop Katcha. So to my left, we have um, Reverend Boris Gutzak, also an Archbishop from Metropolitan of the Ukrainian Catholic Archipaki in of Philadelphia. Archbishop Gutzak served as founder and rector of the Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv, where he, present, where he presently serves as president. He has also taught in Lviv in the Theological Academy. His doctoral thesis, published in 1998, is entitled Crisis and Reform, the Kievan Metropolitanite and the Patriarchate of Constantinople and the Genesis of Union of Brest. Thank you also for being here very much. Appreciate it. So. So my first question is for you, Archbishop um, Katcha. So right now we're in the, in the 60th anniversary of John XXIII's Pachamenteras, and we'd like to ask you, Your Eminence, if you could please help us understand the Church's teaching on peace um, in this anniversary. better now. <clears throat> Thank you very much. I told her to tell me when my time is coming almost to the end, because uh, I can say many things. <laughs> but uh, we have to stop at a certain moment. And uh, I would ask you, where do you start if somebody asks you, what is the teaching of the church about peace? <laughs> so I found you can start anywhere. <laughs> it depends on you. but. <clears throat> I, uh, I thought that we can have uh, an image. It's a Sunday, and is the risen Lord who says to his disciples, peace be with you. And uh, uh, otherwise, there is no reason for the church to say something. The church says something because there is the Lord. And so we have to go back to this uh, situation, terrible situation, injustices, innocent people crucified, trial that was a kind of joke, interests, human rights, 
no human rights, nothing. Dead. But there is a message of the risen Christ. Peace be with you. And uh, I'm glad that uh, it's not that I think like that, but even Pope Francis, <laughs> he said, and I would like to make some comments. The peace Jesus gives us at Easter is not the peace that follows the strategies of the world, which believes it can obtain it through force, by conquest, and with various forms of imposition. This peace, in reality, is only an interval between wars. We are all well aware of this. The peace of the Lord follows the way of meekness and mildness. It is taking responsibility for others. Indeed, Christ took on himself our evil, sin, and our death. He took all of this upon himself. In this way, he freed us. He paid for us. His peace is not the fruit of some compromise, but rather is born of self-giving. So this is the foundation step. And we are back 2,000 years. Now, second step, we come in the year October 1962. You were not born, but some of you, yes. <laughs> and <laughs> what happens October 1962? Here, in America, there was a crisis, the missile crisis of Cuba, that brought almost to the atomic war after the Second World War. And the world was uh, really experiencing a moment of tension. So that John the 23rd was Pope at the time, he took an initiative in consultations also with different uh, responsible to make an appeal. And this appeal helped to find a positive solution. But uh, there was a real moment of uh, difficulty. And uh, after this uh, moment that was a, a real problematic, all the popes intended to stress the importance of peace because with the nuclear weapon you can not just make a war but destroy the world as we know it and everything and so <clears throat> he uh, later before dying some months before dying the following year in 63 he made an encyclical letter called Pacem in Terris, peace on earth. And uh, he stressed the importance of this value for humanity, not just for the, for the Christians, but for humanity. After him, and I will come back later on this Pacem in Terris, because this uh, was the question. Later, we had also <clears throat> Another event that actually was going on in those years, Vatican II, Council Vatican II. And uh, there was a very important document called Gaudium Espes, which is uh, uh, joy and hope, in December 65, 
it characterizes, characterizes peace as a process interwoven with the common good of humanity. And this document goes on to note that, I'm quoting, peace is never attained, attained once and for all, but must be built up ceaselessly, given that the concrete demands of this common good are constantly changing as time goes on. In addition to linking peace to the common good, Gaudium Espes highlights that peace can never be separated from justice, which results from the order structured into human society by its divine founder. And uh, when we talk about peace, sometimes uh, now they prefer another uh, uh, expression they call sometimes harmony, which is more Eastern-oriented uh, vocabulary, but is good. We can always think about four levels. Peace with God. Peace with the other. Please, peace with the environment, our common home, and peace within ourselves. So this harmony or peace is a way that has a vision of all the situation. So <clears throat> after Vatican II insisting on this value, there was the pontificate, even during the Vatican II, of Paul VI. And Paul VI, in uh, uh, December 67, had an idea. He said, peace is important. What can I do as a pope? He said, okay, why we don't do a special day, the World Day of Peace? And when should be this day? He said, why don't we do that the 1st of January? Why the 1st of January? Because you start a new year. When you start a new year, you wish that this year will be blah, 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 blah. And he said, let us put at the first place peace. The best wishes we can offer each other is to offer peace. And so that was December 68, 1st of January 68, was the first celebration of World Days of Peace. And I would like to read to you what the Pope said about this, Pope Paul VI. We address ourselves to all men of goodwill to exhort them to celebrate the day of peace throughout the world on the first day of the year, January 1st, 1968. It is our desire that then every year this commemoration be repeated as a hope and as a promise at the beginning of the calendar which measures and outlines the path of human life in time, that peace with its just and beneficent equilibrium may dominate the development of events to come. And he said, we think that this proposal interprets the aspiration of peoples, of their governments, of international organisms, which strive to preserve peace in the world, of those religious institutions so interested in promotion of peace, of cultural, political, and social movements which make peace their ideal, of youth whose perspicacity regarding the new path of civilization dutifully oriented toward its peaceful development is more lively, of wise men 
who see how much today peace is both necessary and threatened. The proposal to dedicate to peace the first day of the new year is not intended, therefore, as exclusively ours, religious, that is Catholic. It would hope to have the adherence of all the true friends of peace, as it were their own initiative, to be expressed in a free manner congenial to particular character for those who are aware of how beautiful and how important is the harmony of all voices in the world for the exaltation of this primary good, which is peace, in the varied concert of modern humanity. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. So, five minutes, good. (laughs) Very good, she's doing her job. (laughs) So, from that day... Every year, I I hope you are aware, there is a message of the Pope to all people of goodwill, but also to all governments. This this year was the day of peace, and uh, we had, for instance, this is a copy of the message that the Holy Father sends to all head of states, to all head of government and to all bishops, uh, people of goodwill, and for them, he signs personally. This is a copy, it's not the original, but uh, for instance, he sent, you see the signature there, but for instance, we received a copy signed by him personally to the Secretary General of the United Nations. Just to remind people about uh, this important uh, dimension of all political uh, decisions. And uh, if you go on the website of the Vatican, www.vatican.va, you can find all the titles of these uh, different uh, uh, World Day of Peace. It's interesting. I have done that, and uh, I found some titles very, very important. Paul VI, for instance, if you want peace, defend life. Reconciliation, the way of peace. If you want peace, work for justice. The promotion of human rights, the way of peace. To serve peace, respect freedom. Then we have... uh, John Paul II, many, I can't read all the 27 uh, titles, but do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with the good. No peace without justice, no justice without forgiveness. Very powerful. I had the occasion to say that uh, in a village uh, of the Philippines with people uh, having troubles 
of reconciliations, very powerful. No peace without justice, but there is no justice without forgiveness. Respect for human rights, the secret of true peace. Women, teachers of peace, very nice. <laughs> building, <laughs> now believers united in building peace. Do you remember Assisi, 1986, the first meeting of all the religious leaders of the world to pray for peace? Believers united in building peace. Peace with God, the creator. Peace with all of creation, environment, anticipation of Laudato Si. <clears throat> Development and solidarity, two keys of peace. Benedict. Blessed are the peacemakers. That is a beatitude of the Lord. Fighting poverty to build peace. The human person, the heart of peace. Francis, no one can be saved alone. This is the last one, message 56. A culture of care as part to peace. <clears throat> Nonviolence, a style of politics for peace. Overcoming difference and win peace. And in this last message of this year, it was talking about two major problems, COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine. And of the first he said, he asked, what did we learn from the pandemic two years after, more or less? Certainly, I quote, after directly experiencing the fragility of our own lives and the world around us, we can say that the greatest lesson we learned from COVID-19 was the realization that we all need one another, that our greatest and yet most fragile treasure is our shared humanity as brothers and sisters, children of God. And about uh, the war, he said, this war represents a setback for the whole of humanity and not merely for the parties directly involved. While a vaccine has been found for COVID-19, suitable solutions have not yet been found for the war. Certainly, the virus of war is more difficult to overcome than the viruses that compromises our bodies because it comes not from outside of us, but from within the human heart corrupted by sin. And we go back to step one, the reason Christ, okay? And <clears throat> going back to the 60th anniversary of this uh, Pachamin Terrace, the Pope said, okay, we want to go towards peace. What can we do? And he said, we can uh, sketch a kind of answer from the encyclical Pachamenteris. And the encyclical said that we can do that if we respect four basic principles. And the principles are truth, peace in truth, peace in justice, peace 
in solidarity and peace in freedom. And he comments about these four uh, pillars. But I think that the time is over, correct? correct. Very well. So I invite you to read, always in the side that I quoted, the speech the Holy Father made <clears throat> to the diplomatic corps at the beginning of the year, in which he expanded these four principles for today's life. But I would like just to finish quoting a passage, if I found it, of John the 23rd. And uh, okay, since we see the world is not in peace, and there are so many troubles, John the 23rd said, we nonetheless remain hopeful that by establishing contact with one another and by a policy of negotiation, nations will come to a better recognition of the natural ties that bind them together as men and women. We are hopeful too that they will come to a fairer realization of one of the cardinal duties deriving from our common nature, namely that love, not fear, must dominate the relationships between individuals and between nations. Thank you very much. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. So, Archbishop Boris, a word or two. If you, you've taken multiple trips to the Ukraine um, since the war began, and you are ministering here in the United States to Ukrainian people. So if you can help us understand or describe for us how the church, both in the United States and in the Ukraine, is facing the war now. Thank you, Holly, and thank you for your beautiful reflection on the church teaching on peace, uh, Your Excellency. I, I want to thank both of our nuncios, Archbishop Christophe Pierre and Archbishop Gabriele Kacha for this opportunity because they were the voices inviting me here. Uh, I was at a CL encounter almost 40 years ago in Rimini and it, it's good to be back and one thing I just want to say to all of you that when somebody comes in kind of from the side and they look carefully, they see much joy, uh, smiles, uh, warmth uh, in your reception of me and I think of everybody that has come has been really exemplary. And I think that, ge that generates peace in itself. That is the ministry of the church. Allow me to build a bridge from what the Archbishop said to this question of the ministry of the church. Uh, peace is really a divine thing. It's the life of the Trinity. And war is the work of the devil. 
War is the violation of every single commandment. It is the violation of God's will. So the ministry of the church has to remember that, that we are called to minister to help people live in a divine way. And for, for this prayer and presence before the Lord is foundational. So the prayer life of the church, the preaching of the gospel, attentiveness to God's word in all circumstances, but even more so in the circumstances of war, has great meaning. We yesterday had a prayer for Ukraine at St. Patrick's, and because it was a prayer, not a manifestation, it was a prayer and not a protest, I think everybody that was there left with a greater sense of peace. To contextualize what the church is called to do in Ukraine, it's important to know what has happened around the question of peace in the country over the last three decades. Maybe it was naive, maybe it was, in fact, very idealistic, but independent Ukraine in its first years made an unprecedented step to peace. Something that the Holy Father calls for. The Holy Father is speaking about the proliferation of arms, that this is the great problem. There's a lot of arms for war. And as you said, the greatest arms, the, the, the most dangerous arms are nuclear. And so in 1994, out of all of the countries that had nuclear arms, Ukraine was in third place. After the US, Russia, it was Ukraine. Ukraine had more nuclear arms than China, the United Kingdom, and France put together. And in 1994, Ukraine gave up its nuclear arms, along with Kazakhstan and Belarus. Three countries did it. And that is something peacemakers rarely cite, rarely mention. We talk about having fewer arms, about non-proliferation. But it is rarely mentioned that Ukraine was like the Lamb of God who gave up its nuclear weapons, of course, with a great hope for peace. At the same time, it reduced its army. In 1991, when it became independent, it had 900,000 soldiers. By 2014, when this war began, the number on paper was down to 150,000. But battle-ready, there were only 15,000. And that's why 
Crimea was annexed without a shot. Ukraine couldn't resist nine years ago. So there was a deep desire for peace, and there was a prophetic, Christ-like step made by this country. Something that had never been happened. There was the Budapest Memorandum in Great Britain, the United States, and Russia guaranteed Ukraine's territorial integrity and independence if it gives up these weapons. Well, we, we know, you know what happened. Russia actually violated, invaded, and everybody else told, you know, a hundred rich Russians, you can't shop at Harrods in London, or you can't go to the, you know, casinos in Monte Carlo. But their kids can go, their businesses prospered for eight years until the great invasion, uh, the full-scale invasion of a year ago. Ukrainians really want peace, and the churches in Ukraine want peace, because they know the history. Between 1914 and 1950, that's 35, 36 years, 15 million people in Ukraine were killed or died in a natural death. That's more than 1,000 persons every day, every day, on average for you know, 35, 36 years. So on one hand, as you said, peace is something positive. It's not just the lack of violence, but Ukrainians and the churches in Ukraine want to have a lack of violence. But they also understand there needs to be justice. There needs to be freedom. There needs to be dignity. There needs to be truth. You made all the connections. And the problem, the challenge of peace, is that we are sinners. The war in the world, and there's probably about 20 wars going on, hot wars on different continents, is that the prototypical sin is repeated and magnified the sin that we see on the first pages of, of the gospel. God is a giver, and he gives life to the first persons. He created in his image and likeness, in God's image and likeness, to live in a relationship of love and peace as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do. So God the giver says, live the life of the gift like this, this gesture. And he warns, he says, just don't take of this fruit. Don't grab. Because you will die. You will bring death into the human existence. And what happens? Instead of living the gift, the person grabs. And that's what this war is all about. It's a big grab. It's a violation of every commandment. It's a violation of God's will. It's a violation of our identity, which is being the sons and daughters of God, being those created in the image and likeness of divine persons. 
So the first, first thing that the church needs to constantly do is speak these truths. We often, when we ask, you know, what do you do in a certain crisis, we think of, you know, the social activity and humanitarian activity, which is essential. But we Christians need to uh, remember the fundamentals. Today, the churches are with the people. You know, in many, many circumstances, pastors know when a child dies, when there's a war, when, when there's rockets raining down, when there's relentless artillery fire. Anastasia, I don't know if you're here, you're from Kharkiv. Kharkiv is just constantly barraged by artillery fire. It's only 20 kilometers away from the Russian border, and you know, you have artillery that can go 40 and 50 kilometers. The church, a priest, a Christian, often cannot do much and cannot even say much. The words cannot cover the tragedy, the loss, the crippling, the pain, the trauma. But you can be there. And that is what the church is doing now in Ukraine. The bishops, the priests, the sisters are there. Christians are with each other. They're in solidarity. There's a Ukrainian saying, every joy that is shared is doubled, and every pain that is shared is cut in half. So prayer, listening to the word of God, sharing the truth of who we are and who we're called to be, explaining what virtue, valor, and on the other hand, what sin is, being in solidarity, being next to each other, and then helping practically. The church's means are limited. It's a poor country. The church was persecuted throughout the 20th century, so the infrastructure of the church is only slowly recovering. I don't know if, in, uh, Ukraine is the size of France, I don't know if there are five Catholic high schools in the country. I don't think there are five Catholic hospitals in the country. You have 10 times as many in Rockville Center diocese. So the church doesn't have you know, all of the instruments. But one thing I was struck by uh, during one of these trips in this last one, which I returned 72 hours ago, um, when I returned uh, through New York, walking the streets here, I suddenly realized I didn't see this. I didn't see people on the street lying on the curb. Despite the fact that 
14 million people have been forced from their homes. Half of them are refugees outside in the country and half are IDPs, international, internally displaced persons. They've all been received somewhere and they're not in big refugee camps. Now, what the church needs to do is I think what the church has been doing since the time of Pope Leo XIII. The Eastern Catholics, who are 90% of the Catholics in, in, in Ukraine, had great leadership, great visionary leadership. There was a certain metropolitan, Andrei Sheptitsky, from 1901 to 1944. And throughout those 44 years when he was head of the church, he issued very understandable pastoral letters about Catholic social doctrine. You know what the main points of Catholic social doctrine are. God-given human dignity, solidarity, subsidiarity, and the common good. Three of them are easily understandable. Subsidiarity means bringing things down, responsibility and authority to to the lowest level, giving people responsibility and authority, authority and responsibility in their lives. And what I've come to realize in my reflection is that what Sheptitsky did in the first part of the century, how the underground church witnessed truth, because the Eastern Catholics were completely illegal between 1945, 46, and 1989, but they didn't, they didn't compromise. They were sent to Siberia, they were executed, they were martyred, but they didn't turn back on the truth of the gospel. That witness, in the last 30 years, where Sheptitsky's approach was followed by the church leaders, has led to the fact that a mi minority churches have contributed to a social consciousness that is now mesmerizing the world. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. President Zelensky is a great leader, and he's shown great heroism and courage, and of course, he's an incredible communicator. But it's very important to understand that the people were way ahead of President Zelensky until a year ago. They were, they were saying and doing what he is doing, some students at the end of the Soviet period, others during the revolution, Orange Revolution, others during the Revolution of Dignity. Frankly speaking, President Zelensky was very far away from that. He was running you know, a comedy business. He was not, he was not there neither physically, neither voice, neither mentally. But we can change. We can convert. 
you remember, uh, as late as February 23rd, he said the Russians aren't going to attack. President Zelensky, whether he knows it or not, has been a student in the school of Catholic social doctrine. When the church prays and when it speaks the truth, especially when push comes to shove, when the rubber hits the road, when it's a question of life or death, that voice begins to be heard. We don't listen to God's voice when we're full of our noise. We don't see God's plan if we're just occupied with our agenda. But something happens when circumstances around us make our agenda impossible. And something happens with us when the noise of our self-realization is overcome by the explosion of bombs, by air raid sirens. And people start listening, start thinking, and, and that word and call for solidarity starts hitting home. So I won't describe maybe the soup kitchens and, you know, the distribution of clothing and the logistics around medicine. The thousands of Catholic parishes are doing that because the priests know the people and they're there with the people. And the bishops are speaking. What the church can do and has done is based on what the church is and what it has been doing in the last decades and centuries. And it's not only the church in Ukraine. It's the church in the world that has shown this solidarity with Ukraine. And it is in a very special way the church in America. And I want to tell you what people told us I was in Ukraine carrying Bishop John's bags. He and uh, Sister Donna Markham, head of uh, Catholic Charities, were great heroes. They, they came into Ukraine and they saw Bucha. And they talked to a, a woman, a medic, uh, Taira. She's a legend in Ukraine who was tortured for three months as a prisoner of war. And they saw families and refugees, and they saw the destruction, and they lived, they lived through air raid sirens. But they also heard words of gratitude. The top church leaders to run-of-the-mill lay people. Keep doing what you're doing. Pray. Be informed about the clear moral issue at hand and help however you can. We cannot always stop a tsunami, but we can witness. We can do what the Lord did. 
we can, in the face of evil, give, live the life of the gift and reject the grab. Sooner or later, God's truth will prevail. It always does. And in that confidence is our peace in this world. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.